Well, if you would open your Bibles with me to Matthew's Gospel. That's the first book in our New Testament. Matthew chapter 18. And while you're turning there, um, you know, I, I didn't get to say it when we were welcoming those new members, but I've had the privilege to get to know many that were standing on the steps with us this morning and uh, incredible couples. I st- urge you to get to know them and to, to re- uh, find connections with them. They, are, they have all of them not only uh, plugged into community, but also serve. Right, we weren't even sure if Mallory was going to be able to join because she's serving in the back with our children this morning. And so just so grateful for the way all these uh, newer faces have really jumped in and served from the get-go. But on that note of how we care for one another, we're going to read the parable of the lost sheep in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. (coughs) Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This is the word of the Lord. At this time, Children's Church is dismissed, and these little ones will be studying the Bible Uh, as we do so ourselves. A number of years ago, my uncle passed away. He was in his 60s. Uh, He he died from liver disease uh, due to lifelong alcoholism. And I wrote him a letter as he was uh, on his deathbed. And sadly, um, I didn't finish before he passed away. I would like to read a portion of that letter to you now as it relates, I think, to what Jesus teaches us here this morning. After some opening personal comments, I wrote, one patent fact of life is the inevitability of consequences. It's a universal principle. Science assumes it. Every effect has a cause, every action a reaction. Religion moralizes it. Some call it karma, others divine providence. Although we're familiar with the principle, consequences are always somehow surprising, like a late night knock at the door, though the visitor's been long expected. Our lives are a vast spider web of cause and effect. Slim lines attach all our decisions, all our behaviors, and even our temperaments to an entire galaxy of events, good, bad, and ugly. A whole lifetime's work. It's amazing that such delicate threads should be attached to such weighty things, isn't it? Are you familiar with the butterfly effect? It's the scientific concept that small causes can have enormous effects over time. The name is drawn from the idea that the flapping of a butterfly wing in South America can create a typhoon in the northwestern basin of the Pacific two weeks later. I wonder what hurricanes have been stirred by one small tremor on our line. What distant tidal waves crash from even so glib a decision. This is terrifying because we see the ripples of our actions and our inactions radiating far beyond us. 
The countless cords of cause and effect spun out from us intersect with a snarl of others, entangling us together for better and for worse, like knotted strands of Christmas lights. How do we live under such an unbearable burden? The weight of all of our actions, of our inescapable impact on others. One way is to ignore it, or try to, but denial, as they say, isn't just a river in Egypt. The other way is to live under it, to actually feel its terrible weight, at least in part, and then respond honestly with our whole hearts. I read in a philosophy book years ago that every great intellectual, artistic, and spiritual endeavor in history issues us with the poet Rainier Maria Rilke's charge, you must change your life. We implicitly know a radical change is demanded of us. We cannot escape the sense that our lives are of immeasurable and everlasting significance that the network of relationships we're a part of are substantial and transcendental. So refusing to give in to denial or fear, we can face the music and stare the awful and awesome truth in the face. As you reflect on the galaxy events that make up your life, consider the galaxies above. The one who flung the stars into space is not indifferent toward us, tiny spiders that we are. Just as he knows each star by name, having made them so, he knows us. The psalmist saying, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. What a wonderful burden. Our thin webs were designed for such weighty things, divine things. It is the Almighty who has placed us spinning at such great heights to weave our lives together in good and beautiful ways. Of course, so many times we've made a rat's nest of it. But Jesus of Nazareth comes, looks at the cosmic snarl of our bewildering knots and kinks, and without missing a beat, offers us himself. He even throws himself into the gargantuan web. He hangs there motionless in the dark dying. He's facing our music, our inevitable consequences. But death is not the last word for Jesus. If he was who he said he was, how could it have been? On a Sunday morning 2,000 years ago, life had the final word. That word, word declares, first, you must change your life. On this, all great philosophies and religions agree. But only in the gospel do I then hear this invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and overwhelmed, and I will give you rest. This is the best and only word I know to say. May you find rest in your maker and savior, Jesus Christ. Affectionately, your nephew. Jesus' teaching here in Matthew is to the effect that our lives have inevitable and profound significance and influence on each other and that we will give answer for how our lives have shaped others. We will be rewarded, and there will also be correction. I want you to look with me at verse 11. Do you see it? Raise your hand when you see verse 11. It's not there. It goes from 10 to 12, yes. 
Verse 11 uh, does not exist in the earliest manuscripts. It was probably added by a well-meaning scribe. The, ver the verse 11, if you have an NAS, it puts it in brackets, the New American Standard. Uh, but it says, um, the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost, which is borrowed from Luke's gospel. Because this parable, the parable of the sheep, is used in Luke's gospel, but to a very different effect. In Luke's gospel, the parable of the sheep refers to the lost ones who are not yet part of the flock of Christ. But here, in Jesus' usage, the parable is turned toward the little ones who, as we'll see, are already part of the flock of God and how we care for one another as members of that flock. And as we'll see, though Jesus is indeed the good shepherd promised by Ezekiel, as we read, to care for Israel's flock, here the image of the good shepherd is given for us to imitate, that we would be good shepherds of each other. So who are these little ones that Jesus mentions in verse 10 and verse 14? Well, all we have to do is look at the immediate context to answer that question. Look with me to verse 1 of chapter 18 and following. Chapter 18, verse 1 and following. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, a literal child, put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And we'll pause there. So here he's re referencing children and those like children who alone enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, unless you turn and are converted, is one way to translate that, and become like this little child. And what does Jesus mean by that? Does he mean that we have to become immature, naive? No. So often, and, and when we read this, we try to find qu uh, qualities about children that we're supposed to imitate, but that misses the point. Jesus isn't here romanticizing children of these wonderful, innocent angels, <laughs> and they, they are wonderful, our children are wonderful, but rather he's, he's talking about their status socially. In the ancient world, children had no social status. They were dependents. They were not contributors. They were not seen as significant. Their importance was wholly future, what they would become. So to become like a child was to cease to have significance because the disciples asked the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? And Jesus points to a child who had no social status and said, this is the greatest. Become like this. Quit pursuing status. Humble yourselves. And you will be great in the kingdom of heaven. The king of heaven himself came not to be served, but to serve. He washed feet, and even more humiliatingly, he died on a cross for those that he came to serve. And so likewise, we're, these are the kind of people that, that make up Jesus' disciples. As he goes on to say in verse 6, 
whoever causes one of these little ones, and there's that phrase, referencing children, but now metaphorically, not literal, literal children, but such a child, uh, such as one who is like a child, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin or literally stumbles them up, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Jesus is saying here that these little ones are his disciples who are humble in the eyes of the world, of no significance in the eyes of the world, who have little power, little influence, little sway, but nevertheless are of great importance to him. He uses this phrase earlier in gospel, the Gospel of Matthew to talk about his disciples when he says this, whoever gives one of these little ones, same phrase, a cup of cold water because they're my disciple. Their reward will not be lost. Or, as I've already referenced in Luke's gospel, I love this phrase when Jesus says, don't be afraid, little flock, for my Father has chosen to give you the kingdom. Little refers to not only their lack of social stature, their lack of social power, but it's an affectionate term. John the Apostle uses that in his letter. He's, he constantly refers to the church in 1 John as little children. It's a term of affection, as beloved, cared for, as precious. I mean, that's strange. Did you notice that strange verse uh, in verse 10? I tell you in heaven, their angels see the face of my Father. So this is, by the way, where we get the idea of guardian angels. This verse is used to support that. I think you can't quite get that much mileage out of it, but that's the verse people point to. The idea is that the flock of God, the little flock of God, has angels that protect them. You see this in the book of Revelation, the angels over different churches. The point isn't that you have an individual guardian angel, but that there are angels who are servants of God that protect the little flock. And the point is they face God himself. Do you remember Isaiah's image? when he sees God in the temple and he sees the seraphim angels singing and they cover their faces and their feet, well, the angels of these little ones get to see the face of God. That's how precious they are to him. That's the idea. They are precious. And Jesus identifies with them very, very closely. In later in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 25, Wayne referenced this in his sermon. Jesus says to the sheep, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. And the sheep will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or naked or in prison? And remember what he says? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, whatever you did to the least of these, not just the little ones, but the least of the little ones, Whatever you did to the least of the little ones, you did to me. And that's precisely what Jesus says here in Matthew 18, verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. When you receive a disciple that others reject, despise, belittle, overlook, you receive Jesus. It's not just a term of affection, but it's also a term of their vulnerability. Their vulnerability to what? 
to being despised. Hence, verse 10, see to it that you do not despise. Because the disciples are thinking in worldly terms of greatness, of social stature, of power, of influence. And Jesus says, see to it that in your worldly mode of thinking, you do not despise the little ones. You do not overlook them. Think, literally, think down on them, is what the Greek says. These little ones are vulnerable to being overlooked, for not being appreciated for their true greatness in Christ. They're vulnerable in particular to being scorned, mistreated, disdained, dismissed, sidelined. They're susceptible to having hindrances put in their path, suggesting that they're not entirely welcome. They're not part of our inner circle. They are not our equal. They're susceptible to having these stumbling blocks complicate their path to the kingdom of heaven. It's the opposite of welcoming them. Whoever receives one such receives me. But what we tend to do, what we tend to do is put obstacles in their path instead. And that's exactly what Jesus goes on to address. The stumbling blocks, part of the ways in which we despise these little ones is we cast them aside. We put hindrances in their path. We don't necessarily do it intentionally, but we cause these little ones to stumble, and it is of great concern. Jesus says a quick drowning is better for you than if you cause one of these little ones to stumble. It's more merciful that you die by that quick drowning than face me when you have caused one of my little ones to be hindered from the kingdom of God. The word that Jesus uses here, that Matthew records, is scandalon. Of course, where we get the word scandal. And the verb version is where we get the word scandalize. As one New Testament scholar notes, a lot of our English translations are way too narrow when they interpret it as cause to sin. The NIV, the ESV, the RSV renders it in this very narrow way. But it's much broader than just causing a little one to sin. As R.T. France writes, one can be tripped up as much by a disparaging attitude, a lack of concern, a lack of pastoral care, or refusal to forgive, as much as a temptation to sin, are all included in this framework of putting a scandal in front of them or scandalizing these little ones. In short, it can be anything that puts a barrier for someone before the open door of heaven. And it exposes them to the very real danger, these vulnerable ones, to perishing. Verse 14, look at that again. It is not the will of my Father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now the truth is, Jesus himself proves to be a stumbling block for some. As the one who called himself the door, we might say the very door to the kingdom of heaven proves a hindrance to many. Jesus will say earlier in Matthew's gospel after John the Baptist asked, now wait, are you the one or should we expect someone else? Jesus' response is to show, remind John the signs he's performing. And then he says, blessed is he who was not stumbled or tripped up by me, scandalized by me. Or when he goes to his hometown and he teaches and performs miracles, it says they were scandalized by him and they rejected him. And Jesus said, no prophet is welcome in his own house or his hometown. 
We can be tripped up by Jesus. In fact, all of us have been at one point or another. Maybe we're tripped up right now a little bit by Jesus. But blessed are you if you are not scandalized by him. As this is the fulfillment of what the prophets declared when God said, Behold, I lay in Zion a rock of offense, a stone of stumbling. Jesus is that rock of offense. But he's also the only door into the kingdom of God. So we must get through that offense if we would enter into the kingdom of heaven, if we would pursue the kingdom of heaven. But here Jesus is talking about the harmful hindrances, not himself, but the other blockades we throw up for each other to block the path to life. Look at verse 7. Woe to the world for the temptations to sin, or literally, for the scandal, for the, the stumbling block. It is necessary that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the one by whom the stumbling comes. He's saying there's going to be stumbling blocks from here on until the end of the age. Let it not come from you. Let it not come from you. In the parable of the soils that we saw a few weeks ago, Jesus talks about the seed on the, on the, the shallow soil that springs up immediately with joy. But then what happens? Difficulty comes, trial, persecution. And it says, and the seed is literally tripped up, scandalized. We can be scandalized by hardship. We can be tripped up by difficulty. Or what we'll, go, we'll look at next week, the parable of the wheat and tares. Jesus says, there will always be scandals in my kingdom until the end of the age when the Son of Man will send the angels into my kingdom to root out all who cause scandal and are doers of lawlessness. So between now and then, there will be scandals. There will be sources of stumbling in the church and outside the church. But let it not come through us. Let us not be the ones who bring scandal. There are many stumbling blocks in the kingdom. I don't want to contribute. We need to be careful here because, guys, even apostles could be stumbling blocks. Did you know that? In Matthew 16, when Peter makes the great confession, it's the spiritual highlight of his life. He confesses Jesus' true identity as the Messiah. Then Jesus reveals, when his identity is known by his disciples, he reveals his true mission to be rejected, the, the rock of offense that was rejected by the builders that would become the chief cornerstone. I will be rejected and spit on and hated and killed on the third day raised from the dead. And Peter is so taken back, he says, no way, this could never happen. And do you remember what Jesus says to him? Get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me. Peter became a stumbling block to Jesus. How much more so am I susceptible to being a stumbling block to the little ones? So we need to be very careful here. And that's what Jesus goes on to say in verses 8 and 9. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown in the hell of fire. 
Jesus has taught this already in the Sermon on the Mount, but here he's applying it not to how your sin affects you, but how your sin affects others, how it becomes a stumbling block to the little ones. And so we become ruthless to tear out the sin in our own lives, lest we be a cause of stumbling. We become absolutely merciless with our sin because we will invariably impact others for better or for worse. So we need, do need to be very careful about that. And I would say it's not just what we do wrong, it's what we don't do. It's sin of omission as much as sin of commission. So often it's our absence in each other's lives that affects one another, not just our sinful presence. Because you might think, well, the best way to escape is just to not be part of God's people, just not have an impact, but thereby you create a great loss in the body of Christ. When we do not show up in small group, we affect each other. When we don't show up on Sunday and add our voices and our friendly faces, we affect each other. And I'm not saying that we can never miss a Sunday or never miss a small group, but do we have that consistency or have we made it a habit, as the author of Hebrews says, of not gathering, of not giving each other our presence? Not just to be there physically, because you can show up but not be there emotionally or spiritually. But to encourage one another, let us consider how to stir up one another love and good deeds. Let us encourage each other all the more as the day draws near. And I have to confess my failures here that I fail to regularly affirm and encourage with words of affirmation and exhortation and encouragement to others when there's so much encouragement that needs to happen. We all need encouragement. We need it desperately. And the Bible says we are to outdo showing honor to each other. We're to be competitive in our encouragement, as if to say. And so I need to do better in this. I struggle with this. I am too stingy with my praises. And that absence has a negative impact on the saints. Our putting hindrances before others, negatively affecting them, tripping them up, these dearly loved little ones, often involves not just some blatant, obvious sin, though that'll do it too, but it's so often more mundane issues that are involved, like food and drink. Paul has to deal with this with the church in Rome, where Jewish believers and Gentile believers are offending each other over what they ate. And the Gentile believers were being arrogant, and the word he uses, despising the Jewish believers. Like, you, you fool. You can just have a ham sandwich. Chill out. <laughs> and the Jew, Jewish believer who's held to the kosher food laws their whole lives is scandalized by this. But they're passing judgment on the Gentiles. Look at these godless Gentiles. And Paul's like, what are you doing? And this is what he says. It's on the screen. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance, same word Jesus uses, in the way of a brother or sister. Make that decision today. I am never going to put a hindrance insofar as I'm able. I'm going to make that decision. I know and I am persuaded, Paul goes on, that 
in the Lord that nothing is unclean. There's no unclean food, no unclean drink. Nevertheless, it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. If your brother or sister is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. You're not loving them. You're self-absorbed. You're thinking about your rights, what you want, but you're not considering how it's impacting those around you. And boy, is this a challenge for us Americans. We love our rights. And how it affects you doesn't matter. It's my right. This could not be further from the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to freely give up our rights so as to not cause offense, especially in the body of Christ, but even to the outside world, lest we put a hindrance in the way of the gospel. John, the apostle John writes, whoever loves his brother or sister abides in the light, and in them there's no cause of stumbling. If we love each other well, we won't trip each other up. But Paul ends with the last phrase, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. This little one that was so precious to Jesus that he laid down his life for him or her. Do not destroy what Christ has laid down his life to secure. It is not the will of the Father that the least of these should perish, not, not even one. I remember when I was at a Christian study center after college, I kind of had to figure out what I was going to do with my life, and I went to this Austrian study center in the mountains, in the Alps. It was really rough. Uh, at this castle, it was in a castle in the Alps. And I remember, you know, being in the Alps, you had access to really good German-Austrian beer, there was French wine, and we would often at night break open bread and cheese and have some beer or wine and just talk. And nobody overdrank. There was no drunkenness. But there were a number of believers from Eastern Europe who grew up in the devastation of alcoholism. I'll never forget Magdalena. She was a Polish believer, dear woman, who said her brothers so, uh, so intoxicated by the communist propaganda that they grew up with were like, mocked her for her newfound faith, her Christianity, and said, don't you know that this is the opiate of the masses? And she responded, no, alcohol is. Her brother died by suicide in the throes of alcoholism. His, her mother died, liver failure, way too young. Her other brother was deep, deep ens enslaved to alcohol. It's just, it devastated their lives. And to so see these believers just sort of jovially drinking and not really talking about it was a stumbling block to her. I'll never forget Sophia. She was a Russian, came from a similar background. And a couple of the, couple of the folks would roll their own cigarettes and smoke while we were outside. And she was at first scandalized by this, but I remember one week walking up and she was smoking a cigarette. Now, I don't think smoking is intrinsically sinful, but I think for her it was. And I just thought, what are we doing to her? to this little one. It's why we don't encourage alcohol use as a church when we gather formally in our small groups because we never know who's there and what their conscience is. And we, don't, we dare not throw up a hindrance in the path of one of these little ones. Not only are we to remove obstacles in ourselves, in our own lives, for the sake of these little ones, but we're also to remove the obstacles within our life together, our fellowship. 
including in each other. And so I want to read the rest of what flows out of this parable, verses 15 through 19, and then we'll go back to 20. But here's what Jesus goes on right after saying, it's not the will of your father to lose one of these. He says, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, that is an outsider of the community. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And we'll pause there. Many have treated this like a discipline manual. There are discipline manuals in the ancient world. This isn't like it. This is rather a discipleship manual. How do we disciple one another? Some translations say if your brother sins. Others say if your brother sins against you. It's hard to tell because this both versions occur in ancient manuscripts. But whatever the case, Jesus makes it clear we are to go to our, to our brother or our sister when they are being tripped up. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you're at the altar and there, remember, your brother has something against you. So it's not something they've done, it's maybe something you've done. He puts the onus on us. You, drop your gift and go be reconciled to your brother or sister who's offended. In other words, we are to be aggressively removing obstacles from each other's relationships. And I say aggressive. I do not mean that we confront each other aggressively. In fact, the New Testament consistently portrays how we do speak the truth to each other as being marked by love, gentleness, patience, long-suffering. Because you may have to repeat and keep coming back. And, of course, love. We speak the truth in this kind of love, eager to maintain the bond of unity. We're eager to maintain it because we know how precious it is and how easily it can be lost. And so this gives us a great framework of how we are to challenge and encourage each other. And I will say this, it's not just us going to these little ones who are perhaps stumbling so that not one would be lost, but it can also be this, my friends. One of these little ones come to you with an offense. How will you receive them? Will you reject them? Will you shut them down? Or will you humbly listen? Are we willing to listen to the least of these? It's a, it's a tragedy that the church has a reputation for not only like horrible things, like overlooking victims of abuse in the church, one of these precious little ones that are overlooked, sidelined, cornered, silenced, but that these little ones don't feel they can even come to the leadership with an offense. How tragic is this? How broken are we as a church when the little ones don't feel they could come and even get a hearing from those that are viewed as a being important? This is not the way it's supposed to be. We're to be a community where we can freely come to each other and especially leaders, if they're qualified to be leaders, will be quick to hear, slow to speak, 
and receive them with gentleness, with kindness, with gratitude. This, this is n- so often we think of this kind of process as like, a, this is like when it's gone nuclear. But it's not. This is everyday interaction. We challenge each other uh, in love. We, 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 we call each other. My wife often says, we don't call out, we call up. <laughs> I like that. We call each other up to something greater, to greater faithfulness. And gosh, we need it. I cannot tell you how many times y'all have done this for me and you didn't even know it by your example. But I've had some of you challenge me directly, and I am so grateful. And, and you did so with grace and kindness. But I need it. We all do. To call each other up, to care for the flock, because it's not the will of the Father to lose one. Listen, here's what's so fascinating. Jesus will use us powerfully to restore one another as we speak the truth and love to each other in that gentleness and peace and patience and kindness. Jesus will. In fact, that's how he shepherds the flock. It's not an accident that he goes right from the parable of keeping the sheep and going after the one that he then goes to y'all when one of your brothers goes astray, you go after him. Your the good shepherd. Jesus is, but so are you. You're called to imitate the good shepherd and to pursue those who have been tripped up and 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 to pursue them with love and kindness and grace and calling them up to discipleship in Christ. And here's the amazing thing. As we do it, Jesus is at work in our midst. Did you read it? Whatever you decided will have been decided in heaven. Whatever you, re- whatever you choose to forgive will be forgiven. Whatever b- constraints are placed on the fellowship because of ongoing sin will, will be honored by heaven itself. Because Jesus shepherds the flock, yes, despite us sometimes, thankfully. Yes, beyond us, but ordinarily and primarily through us. Isn't that remarkable? And restores us to each other through each other. James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes this. It's the close of his letter. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. That is remarkable. Yes, Jesus alone saves, but he uses us to save others from death. You will have won your brother, Jesus says. You have won your sister. Celebrate. And you will cover a multitude of sins. I love that. Look, I know our entangled webs together right now, it's a mess. This little flock, it's a mess. But Jesus is in the midst of this little flock. And he is actively shepherding us. That's what verse 20 says. I stopped short, but look at verse 20. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. The good shepherd himself is in our midst. And in our efforts to love each other, pursue one another, call each other up. You're not wasting your voice. Yeah, you can do it poorly. Jesus gives us instructions on that, right? Before you call out the splinter in your brother's eye, check the plank in your own, right? There's all these things we can do to humbly pursue each other, and we ought to do that. 
But in our humble pursuit of each other, Jesus himself is at work shepherding the, good, the flock, the little flock that is so dear to him. Jesus is in our entangled webs now, and he's calling us out of our sloth, out of our indifference, out of our self-absorption, out of our fear of engaging these kinds of relationships. And he's calling us to a life of love. He's calling us to a life of repentance, where having someone challenge you is not strange. It's normal. Calling us to soberly consider our impact on each other, to pursue one another's well-being, our growth, our maturity in Christ, to encourage one another and honor each other, to protect the vulnerable among us, which is all of us. We are all vulnerable, and we need to protect each other. Jesus in the th- is in the thick of all of this, redeeming, restoring, healing, forgiving, fortifying, and fulfilling his promise to us. Amen? Uh, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you do not will for the least of these to be lost, but every single one of these little ones is precious in your sight. You zealously guard them, and you call us as a kind of under-shepherd to care for one another. Lord, help us to remove obstacles in our own hearts. If there are people we need to pursue that you've laid in our hearts, Lord, give us the courage to take the next step. May we love each other the way you have loved us in Christ Jesus.